Today's TribCast is presented by Tzu Chi. Thousands of Helping Hands Charity Art Performance Tour is happening this September in Dallas and Houston. Get your tickets at tzuchi.us. Also, AT&T. AT&T has been selected by FirstNet to build and manage America's first nationwide public safety broadcast network dedicated to first responders. Learn more at about.att.com. Texas talking oh, What was that that you said? Texas talking I'm gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas talking. Howdy, y'all. My name's Thor Harris. I'm running for governor of Texas because I think we deserve better. You're about to listen to the Texas Tribune podcast, which means you have pretty good taste. Enjoy this week's Tribcast. Here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on the fourth Wednesday in August with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly podcast about the biggest stories in Texas politics. That was like the most energetic intro we've had yet. Good score. Thor? Yeah. What else does he have to do? He's busy running for governor. Running? Is he, air is, he those are party affiliation? is he a Democrat? Svitek in the middle of this podcast is going to take out his phone <laughs> to check whether he's filed. Yeah. I'm sure that he has. Uh, I'm here to introduce CEO Evan Smith. You're wrong about Dun- – well, you're, you're right about Dunkirk. You were bored. The people Dunkirk. who are listening don't even know that we were debating Dunkirk. We were talking about whether bored. Dunkirk is a good movie. It felt like I was movie. drowning in a submarine the whole time. Uh, <laughs> higher ed reporter Matthew Watkins. It, there's no way you can say it was a bad movie. I didn't say it was a oh, bad movie. You just it's said actually, it. We were talking about it. Was, nah, <laughs> it's a great okay. movie. But, you know, it's, it, it, honestly, it's, yeah. wor- it's like I, I think that the rank order on terms of movies, so it goes love, hate, apathetic is like a distant third. <laughs> I was basically apathetic about it. Political reporter Patrick Svitek was probably at a Kanye show instead of watching Dunkirk. No, Kanye. I saw it. We just went over this. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't seen False. it twice. I haven't seen it twice. Well, would you like to tell our audience your thoughts on Dunkirk? <laughs> have you seen Dunkirk more than you've seen Kanye? Apparently this is a movie review podcast. <laughs> well, as I was saying before, I thought it was good but not enjoyable, which I think is is an interesting dichotomy as far as movie evaluations go. I think I said it, it felt like, like I was Like in working a, for the Texas yeah. Tribune. <laughs> yeah. I said I felt like I was in a, a video game I couldn't turn down. So It was it was loud. Yeah. It was loud. You Would you not agree that it was loud? Something else, yeah, it was loud? something else that is loud is the national conversation around Confederate <laughs> monuments, Confederate <laughs> statues, Confederate flags, Confederate just about anything. Uh, Matthew, why don't you fill us in what happened in the dark of night on the UT campus this week? Yeah, as I was uh, getting into bed... Uh, I got a frantic text message. <laughs> from who? Real, from real, Emily Ramshaw. Really, this is, way, is way too much information. <laughs> it was 11 p.m. Yeah, it was 11 p.m. Your time. I was on vacation in Santa Fe. <laughs> yes. So anyways, uh, <laughs> the uh, that the University of Texas was taking down its three remaining Confederate statues, along with the statue of uh, Governor Hogg. Um, Basically, in the middle of night, uh, as an effort to avoid uh, the protests, unrest, you know, a redux of Charlottesville. Could they have just done it on Facebook Live? <laughs> See what I did there? Nobody gets that joke except maybe us. I think, our, I think our audience gets it. <laughs> <Most of it. laughs> 
and and this was not planned. It was planned, well, but it was I mean, not announced. It was right? yeah, it was a surprise. No one announced move. that it was. Well, it was announced when it started happening. So the press release went out like at 11 p.m. or something, mm-hmm. right? And th- that it was basically starting. And so we sent a photographer over there really quick. Uh, okay, so I may be in the minority here, but I'm just and I know this is a controversial thing to say, but I'm just gonna say it. I think when you do something in the middle of the night, it acts like you have something to hide or you're ashamed of it. That's what Dan Patrick said. You know, that was he obviously was opposed to this move altogether, it seemed. But one of his. Apparently, Dan Patrick and I have a lot (laughs) in common. Also, he thought Dunkirk sucked. (laughs) All right. You know, he went on radio the next morning and said this just looks bad the way that it was done overnight. I mean, he obviously had other criticisms of the move, but one of them was that right. it looks it sends a poor message or it's the, the optics of it or the appearances. Well, let, let, let's stipulate that the lieutenant governor is not responsible for what I'm about to say, but we have a legislature that will occasionally pass legislation at 3 in the morning when no one right. is looking. And right? I, think, I, mean, I mean, I think that's inappropriate, right. too. He who has no wristwatch on his wrist should not cast the first stone or something like that. I mean, this I mean, all, you the, can also do it like at 6 a.m. At least like the yeah. sun is coming up or something as few people are awake. I mean, I think um, it's interesting to contrast this, how they did it this time with how they took down the Jefferson Davis statue. Two didn't years they have ago. all these like com- public yeah. hearings and a committee? Right? Exactly. Exactly. And we all knew in advance, long in advance that it was happening. And this was a much quicker decision. But, you know, I mean. Things have changed since then. The political climate has changed. The uh, fear of violence has changed. And, you know, I think uh, President Finvis looked at what happened in Charlottesville and decided he did not want something like that. Was this this campus. was a Fenvis mic drop decision? So- this was him like and it. him alone. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I was going to ask, do, do we get any indication of the level or extent of deliberation over this in between Charlottesville and when it actually happened? He ha- There hasn't been any kind of public comment. He hasn't, aside from the letter he sent out as they were taking it down, he, he hasn't commented on it. Mm-hmm. You know, my the impression I've gotten from talking to other people is that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like at 10... 30, he was like, let's take the statues <laughs> down. Exactly. Right. But, you know. John, I'm waiting for John Oliver. What am I going <laughs> right. to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, this is what the city of Baltimore did, right? Yeah, there are other did, yeah. places that have done this sort of in the dead of night. I mean, I'm not second guessing the decision to take these down. I mean, you know, I, I just think it's strange to do it in the middle of the night. If you are so confident that this is the right decision, you know, again, you why not do it in in daylight? You really are concerned there's going to be that much sort of violence and drama? Maybe. Well, I mean, yeah. maybe. You know, I people mean, could have shown up in the middle of the night as they were doing it too. Once that announced, I mean, they did announce Dammert. it. They they did announce it. You know, it went viral on Twitter once it started yeah. to happen. And, and some people did show up. Mm-hmm. There was the my favorite thing to come out of this was the Jim Vertuno tweet of the two guys who showed up on campus, walked around for a while, then left to go get their Antifa masks and put them on. <laughs> so you, you did not... I did not go. ...spring from bed. I, I moved to my sofa so my wife could go to sleep, but... Uh, I did but get an email that. from Matthew at like 6.30 in the morning that said, yep, confirmed, they're down. <laughs> it, I mean, now that this is a few days behind us, it seems like they the university was successful in avoiding the massive controversy that may have... Uh, surrounded this decision if it had happened in broad daylight or it happened with more advanced notice. I mean, it's obviously everyone's debating whether it was the right thing to do it overnight, but there hasn't been severe widespread pushback from state leaders. Obviously, we talked about Dan Patrick being critical. There haven't been, as far as I know, massive, you know, dangerous protests in the in the aftermath of it at the university. So it seems like it was mission accomplished for them. The, you know, the the the, the the president of the university or the tower institutionally has had to eat a little bit of shit on Twitter 
but much less shit than right, Philip yeah. Puffines' consultant after he referred to <laughs> Angela Paxton as Mrs. Ken Paxton. Mm-hmm. So in the, it's about a two on the shitometer, honestly. <laughs> it wasn't very much. And, and the reality is we've moved past the discussion of the UT Confederate statues to other things as the world has provided us right. with many different yeah. other things to pay attention to. And so in that respect, probably this mm-hmm. has been tamped down. Well, what was the official response from state leaders? Well, oh, go ahead. Oh, no. I mean, Dan Patrick was obviously – he was upset about it. He had, I think, a radio interview the morning after. Like Mark d- Davis or something. Clearly didn't yeah. like the uh, you know, the, the decision to do it overnight. Um, and he's also been vocal um, against this move you know, in the wake of Charlottesville. To, has Abbott said anything about to this? To take down statues. Yeah. Abbott has weighed in on the push to take down Confederate statues after Charlottesville. But saying, not specifically. But not specifically didn't UT. Didn't he say he didn't, you know, he didn't think it was necessary? Not he didn't say that specifically about the UT decision, but he no, said but something you know in general. You know this doesn't erase our history. Um, you know uh, I think that was the it's maybe the only thing that's happened the in the last six months that Dan um, Patrick hasn't blamed on Joe Strauss. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I asked I asked time. Senator Cruz about it in uh, New Braunfels uh, the morning after it happened, and he uh, gave what was I don't know maybe a little bit of surprising response to some people, or maybe at least to his critics. He said that every community in the wake of Charlottesville is going to make their own decisions about what to do with Confederate statues, and it was completely up to, to UT. So he offered neither criticism nor praise. Local control. Right. <laughs> for a change. Um, what? Where are these statues going? So the three Confederate statues will be going to the Briscoe Center for American History, um, you know, basically put up as a mu- museum display, um, you know, partially probably as a counter to the argument that this is erasing history. And then the statue of Governor Hogg will be relocated somewhere else on campus, but they don't know where now. And I actually asked someone from UT this morning whether they were going to put up new statues in their place, um, which could create kind of a fun, interesting Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Vince Young. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, I, some people suggested on Twitter, uh, Heeman Sweat. The, um, which would be a kind of an interesting, you know, uh, positive statement to do. Um, but at this point, they the answer I received was that they haven't gotten that far in the thought process yet. It's a it sends a pretty moving or artistic statement just to leave them empty. But it is kind of strange to have them empty for posterity. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Uh, well, meanwhile, we had six flags of Texas reduced to five flags of Texas. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think it was reduced to one flag, didn't it? Wasn't? Isn't it basically all American flags are going to be up? Is, right. I, did yeah. I read that properly? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it so. elicited a searing response from our agriculture commissioner, Sid Miller. <laughs> what did he say? I mean, he, he did, not, did he none of you out, read our story. Yeah. I read his statement, like, like, like that rich yeah. Texan from The Simpsons shooting his guns <laughs> in the air. Basically, that's what he did. I mean, yeah, you know, he, he he just he called he, six flags anarchists. He said that basically anybody who is for taking down the flags or taking down Confederate monuments are violent leftists. He, yeah, he just, race baiting leftists right. or something like that. His words. I mean, online. let's stop to note that he called like you know uh, a major economic driver in Texas communities. Uh, anarchist i mean isn't part of his job you know sort of like preserving industry in texas is that industry i don't know i hate I think we're probably coasters. thinking about it too what? much Why do you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's our job right you hate roller coasters i don't need help feeling nauseated i, I come to work every day that's that's reason enough <sighs> no i no, I, I think that what's interesting is that sid miller is always consistently 100 percent sid miller 
You can always count on Sid Miller to be Sid Miller. This is consistent with everything Sid Miller has done or said on a similar subject over time. And so the real news to me, my mind would have been if Sid Miller had been like, hell yes, take down the statues. Right? In some ways, Sid was just being Sid. But it's it's consistent with a certain strain of thinking that is the big pushback at the moment. Well, I'm certain that a lot of his voters go to Six Flags on occasion. You've been to Six Flags? I have, actually. I just went um, earlier this summer. And what did you do? Patrick has a, a very robust social life. <laughs> <laughs> what did I do there? What did you do there? I think I rode all the roller coasters. I think I went on every single one. I like the one that looks like a big uh, mothball or like a big, it's like a spherical, I don't know. It looks like a bunch of a bunch of roller coaster track all jammed together. People who are fans of Six Flags know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, if you are fans of Six Flags, it's like a ball like to... of track. <laughs> Collectively, it's a ball of track. Yes. This is the most. All right, well, remind us. You're learning so much about. I, I was going to say this is like the most Svitecky personal revelation filled tripcast ever. Yes, ask us any questions you <laughs> yes, want to know about Patrick in the Facebook questions. All right, let's talk about another um, great university-related story this week, and that was Matthew's big look at how the UT system has become one of the richest educational institutions in the world, and the answer to how is oil, right? That's right. So um, uh, Nina Satija, our investigative reporter, and I spent a good amount of time looking at how UT the UT system spends its um, what's known as the Permanent University Fund. Basically, what happened was in the uh, late 1800s, the state set aside about 2.1 million dollars of acre, 2.1 million acres of land in West Texas. Back when the state didn't have much money, the idea was you know they'd let some cattle graze on the land, they'd uh, maybe sell it at some point to help kind of kickstart an endowment for UT and A&M. Uh, about 50 years later, that land struck oil, and that has now created a fund that's worth $20 billion um, in UT, in the possession of UT. Uh, a third of that money gets shared with A&M, and about uh, $600 million can be spent by UT each year. Any restrictions at all on the way the money is spent? Yes. So, yes. Um, Which is why not all students are going to UT for free. That's right. That's right. So, you know, first of all, there's the restriction is that you can't just spend all $20 million in one year, that they um, they can only take out a small portion each year in order to, what they say, preserve the corpus, keep that amount growing and stable. Um, then beyond that, the money goes to the UT system, and the UT system can do uh, three things with it. They can use it to fund construction on any of the campuses within the UT system. They can use it on system administration uh, or system initiatives, um, which would basically be stuff you know run out of Bill McRaven's office, uh, the chancellor. Or they can pass on that money with no restrictions to UT Austin to be spent in any way UT Austin. Only UT Austin, not the other system campuses. Correct. Right. And so historically, is the percentage of money that is now going to UT Austin smaller or larger than it has gone to UT Austin over time. So the percentage has changed, uh, has has stayed relatively steady. It's about to go up a little bit um, based on a decision made by the Board of Regents earlier this year. What has changed is that um, thanks to the fracking boom, the amount of money coming in available to the university system has gone up significantly. And that has led to a substantial growth in the administration at the UT system. You know, one of the numbers that we cited in the story was that in, I believe, 2011, 
the UT System Administrative Office's budget was $33 million. Uh, this fiscal year, the 2017 fiscal year, that budget was $143 million. Um, and we highlighted, I guess, some projects that they have chosen to spend money on in recent years, the most kind of high profile of which would be uh, $215 million to buy land in Houston, um, a move that when they did it, they said they didn't really know what they were going to do with the land, that they were going to kind of figure that out later. Um, they ended up decided, deciding they're probably going to sell it due to a lot of pushback by the legislature. So, I mean, is any of this money or how much of this money is being used to make college more affordable for all these students who go there? Of the $603 million that went to the UT system this year, $40 million, which is about 7%, uh, was allocated toward financial aid. Almost all of that was graduate student stipends. So it's, you know, um, it's really like, you know, for TAs and stuff like that, only about $3 million went to um, undergraduates. Is that inconsistent with intent? Well, the... That's what's debated, I guess. <laughs> that's that's what's up for debate. You know, the, the only kind of thing, what it says in the Constitution is that the money is to be used to build a university of the first class, you know, which is what you hear from UT all the time. Um, and so UT has interpreted that to mean um, that they should spend it on what they call excellence. And Incredible research facilities or exactly. like that kind of stuff. Centers. Versus, exactly. but I, I do think, I mean, it's just, it's such a huge sum. I mean, I wonder if the intent, you know, should change at all given the value of it and, and the pressures that are on so many students. It does I, you know, per, obviously perceptions aren't always reality, but a, the perception of having that much cash and spending that little on, you know, actually helping students attend um, is probably what's, you know, what's super controversial. And the, and the pushback, correctly if I'm wrong, the pushback is buildings or education. That's the chancellor's perspective is that if you want to talk about excellence, buildings and centers that we create, spend money on, ultimately mm. advance Benefit that narrative. Benefit the student. So he, when, when we, we asked for an interview with Chancellor McRaven and he turned us down. Uh, we sent some written questions, and he responded to those. And that was not a big argument that he made. What was We've, his bigger argument? Uh, you know, basically, um, you know, so one of the big focuses that we had in the story was this increase in administrative spending. And basically the idea that any dollar spent at the UT system administrative level could have otherwise gone directly to UT Austin. And right now, UT Austin you hear a lot from their administrators how tight for money they are. Um, right. Aren't they aren't they facing cuts along with everybody else or something close to it? Exactly. So, you know, we had in the this most recent session pretty significant cuts that were being considered, a lot of alarm raised by both Chancellor McRaven and UT administrators about the impact of that. They've had to raise tuition in recent years. Uh, state funding is now a much smaller share of their budget. Um, and, you know, they really talk about how they don't have the financial resources. We sat down with the CEO and he, he pointed us to the amount of revenue coming into UT Austin compared to its peers, compared to the, you know, uh, University of Wisconsin's and North Carolina's and Michigan's and the schools that it kind of aspires to, uh, you know, consider its peer group. And, you know, all those schools get a lot more money than UT Austin does. And so, um, you know, the question has been, uh, you know, ha what good has the administrative expansion been at the UT system? Um, Chancellor McRaven's main argument and what he's written to us is that it's done a lot of good. It, it coordinates 
the individual universities um, to uh, pursue initiatives, uh, particularly with research. Um, they've done some things where they've consolidated some administrative staff at the system level, um, but and uh, not instead of being at the university level and a, a way to cut costs there. Um, the results of that have been mixed, though. You know, they've, they just recently decided to send the auditors back to the campus level because it wasn't really working well. There was an IT contract that they did that's ended up costing the system a lot more money than it expected. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, the, we've kind of heard, we haven't heard any kind of official response from McRaven since the article came out. We've kind of heard through the grapevine that maybe he's made that argument about the buildings, but he has not made that argument okay. to us. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, who among you can fill us in on the latest on uh, redistricting? There was a federal court ruling in Texas last week that said what? Well, that the Farenthold and Doggett districts, one Republican and one Democrat, were not drawn constitutionally or consistent with the Yeah, the ruling invalidated those two districts, yeah. and now the state is uh, taken their case to the Supreme Court trying to, to stop this uh, effectively. And there's a mixed view as to whether the state will try through a special session, second called special session, deal with the issue. The governor's office seems to believe or say, and the attorney general's office seems to confirm that there is not an intent to have the legislature come back and draw those maps. But Senator Don Buckingham uh, from Lakeway just earlier this week told some sort of a gathering, it was reported in the Temple uh, newspaper, that she believed that they were about to be called back for a redistricting special session. So either she's freelancing that and doesn't know what she's talking about, or as occasionally as the case, she knows something that the rest of us doesn't, and she's saying something before the rest of us have found out about it officially. Well, I mean, I think the question is what the Supreme Court does, right? So if the Supreme Court, you know, upholds the or, or declines to intervene in the federal court ruling, then the state has two options, right, which is to let the, the court redraw the maps or to, you know, lawmakers could come back and do it themselves, right? Right, yeah, I agree. The, the big, one of the big political angles here was that this ruling last week um, left untouched the 23rd Congressional District, which is the most, usually the most competitive in the right. state. There was a lot of chatter uh, in that race as it takes shape, whether that district would look different in 2018. And to be clear, it still could look a little different. One of these districts that wasn't validated uh, is adjacent or has shares some, mm -hmm. some boundaries with the 23rd. Uh, but it looks like the 23rd is not going to experience any drastic change in its boundaries. And, and you saw <laughs> the potential candidate field apparently react to that. We had two new Democratic candidates emerge over the right. weekend uh, for that, that seat. Well, I mean, invariably, this is a jigsaw puzzle. If you change right. the if shape change of one two, piece, right. then you change the shape of other pieces. Yep. And so if you change these two, you're going to have to make some changes in others. Oh, and that's going to have an impact on districts, presumably different from just Farenthold yeah. and Dogg. Well, this is probably a question for Ross, who is not here, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Like, how do the courts know how to redraw maps? I mean, is it just that the, you know, justices get together and, you know, get out their sketchbook? I mean, are there people who are experts on this, who do the sort of population analyses? I mean... Yeah, yeah. and there are parameters mm -hmm. that you know, you must do these things. They have to be a certain size. There's an assist. I mean, there, there are definitely things that mm -hmm. would drive that decision. The presumption, and I think it's a presumption, is that if the courts draw them as opposed to the legislature drawing it, that politics would not be as much of a factor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's why the... Now, I mean, but what does the legislature have an incentive for the court to draw them other than that, that they don't have to come back for a special session? I suppose, I mean, these are congressional maps, so maybe the legislators are like, eh, let the courts, you know. On the other this. hand, if the legislature lets the courts draw it, then they're probably going to be less favorable to what the legislature right. and the people in charge right, right. now yeah. want. Right. So. Isn't there still, um, 
I wish we had Jim right now, but isn't there still an outstanding uh, case as it relates to the state house map? Y- yes, mm-hmm. we don't know. Yeah. We're yeah. waiting on that as well. I, I imagine legislators would would more uh, <laughs> eagerly yeah. jump at the opportunity Be for a special session inclined. over drawing their own right. districts than yeah. congressional districts. My understanding too is if the courts do redraw it, they do try to kind of stick as closely mm-hmm. as they can to how the state drew it as for. It, it's not like we're going to see like a dramatic, you know, yeah, like. Uh, a district know. that looks like Vietnam, looking like a school, like Nevada. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. On the on the other hand, is we have a story today mm-hmm. about the drawing of the 35th, which is the Lloyd Doggett district. Mm-hmm. That is one of the two that the judges have come back and said is not okay. I mean, you can't that, look, you can at, look that at that map district and you and go, "What is he representing?" Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, just a reminder: if you're tuning in on Facebook, we've got just a few minutes left here. Um, all right, so it was A.G. Ken Paxton who was asking the Supreme Court to intervene in this redistricting case. Um, he's battling his own uh, legal cases. Um, now we have news that someone else in his family may be running for office. What's the deal? Yeah, Angela Paxton, the attorney general's wife, is uh, looking at a potential uh, state Senate run. Uh, this would be Senate District 8, which is going to be an open seat in 2018 because it's the current office holder there. Van Taylor is running for instead running for Congress. Uh, this is, you know, quite a shakeup in terms of the, the early dynamics of this race. Uh, Philip Huffines, the chairman of the Dallas County Republican Party, got into this uh, race for Senate District 8 very early on. I think it was back in, in March. Uh, raised a lot of money, uh, built some support, was able to clear the field of two state representatives who had looked at it but but decided not to do it, Jeff Leach and Matt Shaheen. Um, and things as of you know uh, Friday, everything was looking up for Philip Huffines. Mm-hmm. He had cleared the field, and there were no other potential candidates in sight. And then out of nowhere, this news breaks that Angela Paxton, who is by all accounts a, a beloved figure in Collin County mm-hmm. politics, uh, is looking at the race and, and may very well get into it. No and political so, experience. Right? No political experience. So how is uh, she a beloved in, figure if she has no yeah, political experience? Yeah, she's active in, in different uh, in the civic community. She appears at uh, political events w- across the With state. With her not guitar. Just in, and, yeah, and she some does tunes. some solo appearances too. Is not always just showing up as mm-hmm. the attorney general's wife. She's a long, become, long history of people in the Senate you know, who have no political experience. You know, particularly I mean, in Collin County, she's become a political brand on her own. And mm-hmm. so she would definitely be a formidable opponent right. for Philip Huffines. And, you know, one issue that's going to emerge in this race, if she were to get into it, is this carpetbagger attack on, on Philip Huffines. He's not originally from Collin County. I believe he reportedly had to move into the district uh, to launch his campaign. Um, you know, the uh, supporters of Angela Paxson are, gonna, are already portraying her as a hometown girl, mm-hmm. you know, someone who's been right. there for a while and has much deeper roots in the district than Philip why do we? Says. Why do we want somebody from Highland Park, effectively, right. no matter right. where he may call his residence presently? Yeah. Why do they want somebody from Highland Park to represent Plano? Yeah. And these are, these are two very conservative people, and so a primary battle may not necessarily be fought on uh, ideological divides, but, right. you know, personal personal things. Right. I mean, and that, you know, puts you in the situation mm-hmm. of wondering whether Huffines would, you know, go after Angela's husband, would go after sort of the... Well, look, so you had I mean, the consultant to to Philip Huffines yesterday in response, I think maybe he responded to a request for a yeah, statement from we just Patrick, for comment, yeah. uh, referred to the prospect of Angela Paxton in the race by referring to her as Mrs. Ken Paxton, right. which this reminded me of when Lorene Powell Jobs bought a majority stake in the Atlantic and was referred mm-hmm. to in some headlines as Steve Jobs' widow. Mm-hmm. Right. As if yeah. she didn't have anything worth yeah. uh, right. uh, talking about herself, that her whole job was basically that she was his widow. In this case, they're going to try to d- diminish Angela Paxton's stature down to the level of wife. Um, 
at least in terms of the pushback immediately on Twitter and after uh, that, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see whether they continue down that path and they try to reduce her to his wife as opposed to a person. It's the Amal Clooney right. problem. <laughs> well, in that case, I think George Clooney is her husband. Right. Right. Yeah. But, she's she's but the she more awesome one in that relationship. The other way around. Right. No, but I think look, you have an interesting dynamic here. So you've got basically nepotism or nepotism. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm not suggesting that neither one is independent of the nepotistic connection worth mm-hmm. electing, but you do have essentially both. In both cases, you have that. And look, I, th- I think an interesting and so far largely uncommented on aspect of the mm-hmm. Hoffines candidacy that would theoretically get airing in either a primary or in a general election should a Democrat file there is you have 20 Republicans in the Senate right now and are likely to have 20 next time. You need 19 to bring up a bill. You have effectively a Huffines brother caucus mm-hmm. of two who right. could conceivably shut the Senate's business down right, if they yeah. elected to. <laughs> they could say, we're not going to support bringing X bill to the right. floor. I mean, it's an interesting dynamic. When it's is not the last unprecedented. time there were siblings in the same chamber? Well, now, uh, Bonin and Bonin. Oh, right, in the House. Right? I mean, you had, yeah, yeah. and you know, the, as Ross points out, the Keffers before that, Bill Keffer mm-hmm. and Jim Keffer, what about in the were Senate? in there previously. I, I don't such know a that small there's chamber. Been a, two out of 150 is a lot different than two, than two out of yeah, 31. Right. <laughs> right. On the other hand, Ross points out, asks the question, I don't. we don't have a, a, a certain answer to this, would Angela Paxton have to recuse herself from voting on the budget? Hmm. Because part of the budget includes the funding for Ken Paxton's salary. Yeah. Right. And there's an emoluments aspect to whether she would have to not vote I mean, on something in a common law marriage or community property to... state. Would she not be able to weigh in on that? Yes, although we all know that they don't ever recuse themselves from anything. They actually yeah. have business, personal business before. So <laughs> I, I think this might be a complicating aspect to it that presumably has been looked into and could mm-hmm. be wired does, around. Does Huffines have a heck of a lot more money to run that race? Well, he's independently wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and we G- know the Paxtons are like, his... you know, borrowing uh, or getting donations from friends to fund his legal campaign. Yeah, I mean, Huffines, you know, I think starts out as presumably the, the better funded candidate in the race. But, you know, you are already seeing other state representatives mm-hmm. who clearly want an anti-Huffines candidate mm-hmm. rallying around mm-hmm. Angela Paxton. And I'm sure that they're willing to pony up from, the, you know, for example, someone like Jeff Leach has, a, you know, pretty nice campaign coffers. So right the now. four right now who He'd have come out and said in. to you specifically that they're for uh, uh, Paxton. Leach, Shaheen, Jody Lavenberg, and um, Scott Sanford. Scott Sanford. So that's mm-hmm. four right there who have said we'll support Angela Paxton should she get in this race. Right. I mean, as you point out, it's not like Philip Huffines is Victoria Niave in the ideology department. No. Right? He's a conservative guy. Now, the Huffines family, that branch of the tree has tended to be a little bit more libertarian conservative. Mm-hmm. Right? Senator Huffines, his brother, was and the I- chair of the Rand Paul mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I actually sitting here today. If there is going to be an ideological divide in the race, I think it will be that you will see uh, the libertarian leanings of the Huffines family. I don't mm-hmm. know particularly where Philip Huffines falls in that, but I think you will see that come up in a way that you saw it come up last cycle, where you had two conservative heavyweights duking it out for the Senate seat in East Texas, Brian Hughes and, and David Simpson. Right. Two very conservative guys by most accounts, but you had one candidate, David Simpson, who had more Lean of a libertarian, libertarian streak, yeah. and he was ended up being easily defeated. And, you know, you're also going to have other contested Senate primaries in this cycle, including maybe most especially mm-hmm. uh, Pat Fallon from mm-hmm. – uh, what is, where is he from? Fallon is from Denton. Uh, Frisco, I believe. Frisco uh, is apparently going to run, we think, is going to run against Craig Estes, who is an incumbent from Wichita Falls, who is uh, apparently – Everyone says if he gets challenged, he's not going to fold. Yeah. He's going to run. 
So that's at least another instance of, of that. I mean, yeah. we don't know of any others, but it's uh, we're getting to that time. Yep. It's exciting. Speaking of that time, that's all the time we have. If you like listening to the Tribcast every week, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings help us reach more listeners like you. And if you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music. On behalf of Evan, Patrick, Matthew, and our producers Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. So if we're going to say bad things about people, we have to get them all in the next one second? Yeah. Shut up.